You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.10, Hostile Takeover, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and by the end of this episode, I too will flee by space shuttle, leaving you all in the hands of new podcast host, Kiara Soon. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and suddenly wondering, if Kiara is in any way representative, how weird must Kaman's inner circle be? (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 419 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Alexander P. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And a correction for last week's names, it is Haybraid. Apologies for getting it wrong, and thank you for letting us know. You may notice we are uh, down a supporter or two from last week. Uh, I think we are feeling the effects of COVID. No hard feelings. If you have been a supporter and are unable to continue to do so now, we understand these are very hard times for many of us. If you are able to support us, we have gathered all of the different ways to support us onto one helpful page, gundampodcast.com slash support. And if you want to support the podcast, but you are not able to do so financially right now, then we would love it if you would tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is the best way for a podcast to grow. It's helped us enormously so far, and we are always excited to get new listeners. So thank you to everybody who has already helped us grow, and thank you in advance to everyone who is still helping us today. And we would also like to thank Mongoose Ninja in the MSB Discord, who provided invaluable assistance with our research this week. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 12, Lena Vanishes, or Rina Ga Kieta. But first... Let's check out what's going on at Radio Free Shangri-La. In a darkened room, deep within the confines of Radio Free Shangri-La, a lone figure picks up the phone. Oh. It's me. Mm. No. Mm? No. No, it's Tom. Mm. Tom Thompson. Yeah, thanks. I was glad to hear you made it out of that mess alive, too. I don't really want to talk about Nina's daughter right now. Yes, I heard her Access Today broadcast. Yeah, getting promoted to captain is very impressive. I am just extremely happy to hear all about the good things that are happening for her while I'm working out of a converted warehouse in a scrapyard where my windows overlook Sludge Lake. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's like a lake, but instead of water, it's got... uh, Look, you know what? Actually, 
I'd love to catch up, but I called because I need a favor. <laughs> so I've got this new project, and I could use some help getting it off the ground. It's a radio studio. <laughs> mm -hmm. A talented amateur is trying to do meaningful artistic work. Yeah, it's awful. But they're all very innocent. And they trust me completely. I think they've got potential. They just need a little help. Do you happen to have Nami Car Cornell's phone number? Or maybe an Earthmail address? <laughs> She's dead? Okay, but like, dead dead or just in hiding under an alias dead? <laughs> oh great, what's her alias? <laughs> Tumi Car Princeton? Is she on my Earth? <laughs> She's reinventing herself as a wellness influencer? <laughs> Newtipify pays how much for a sponsored post? <laughs> no, I'm not jealous. I started doing indie radio serials for the artistic fulfillment. <laughs> Stop laughing. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing at me. You make podcasts. Oh, you gave up? Yeah, I've heard it's hard to get traction with those two. So what's Tumikar's username? Enhance your life? Life with a Y? I'm not seeing it. Oh, you're like you are? Okay, I got it. Here she is. Thank you. Oh, am I going to see you at next month's Schrodinger Society for Ambiguous Survival Luncheon? Oscar and Marker are going to be there, and I hear they're giving Kamari Ray a Lifetime Achievement Award. You're dating Masaki, right? Bring her along. <laughs> All right, Gates, thanks for everything. I will see you... <laughs> Fine. Yes, I will check out your sound nebula. <laughs> you do metal covers? What's your band called? <laughs> At the Gates Kappa of Misfortune? <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's great. Uh-huh, yep, I'm typing it in now. Thanks, and have a good... Yeah, I miss the Titans too, buddy. Ooh, he did a metal cover of Anime Janai. This is pretty good. And now the recap for Lena Vanishes. The Endra buzzes with activity. Mashima, fed up with having to deal with Kiara, is leaving the ship. Glemmy begs him to stay and then begs to be allowed to go with him. But Mashima insists on going alone. Kiara is there to see him off and promises to take good care of the Endra. Goten stands by her side, smiling and wishing his former commander well. But Goten has cause for second thoughts almost immediately. Without Mashima, they have no pilot for the Hamahama, and Kiara refuses to go out in her own mobile suit, the Arjarja. When Goten points out that there's no way the Gaza Seas can stop the Double Zeta on their own, Kiara blurts out, I know, and slaps him in frustration. But after a moment of racking her brain, she has an idea. To ram the Lavian Rose with the Endra, Destroying or capturing the dock ship will hurt Ayug and allow the Endra to resupply at the same time. 
Overwhelmingly pleased with this idea, she hugs Goten's face to her chest before going to the bridge to oversee the attack. The newest Argama crew members are on a training flight, with Judo in one core fighter and El and Bicha in another, when, in the midst of a thick field of debris, they find an original, completely intact, MS-06 Zaku. This kind of antique could make them a lot of money, and they decide to take it back to the Argama right away. Lena, running errands around the ship, overhears him telling the bridge crew that they are aborting the mission, and she is outraged right alongside Bright and Torres. They are supposed to be picking up supplies from the Lavian Rose. When she tries to scold Judo into following orders, he claims he can't hear her, blaming the Minovsky particle interference. I'll take responsibility, Lena declares, before rushing off to the hangar. Rue is preparing to do the supply pickup that Judo and Elle abandoned, and Lena demands to go with her. If I don't go, my brother will never learn, she explains. Rue acquiesces, and even as he grumbles that everyone on his crew seems to do whatever they want, Bright gives them permission to launch. In sight of the Lavian Rose, Chiara orders the Endra to open fire, and a charge straight at the dock ship. The Lavian Rose returns fire, and Chiara, feeling the rhythm of the battlefield, taps her feet, sways, and dances with excitement, even as the bridge crew around her look frightened. Entering the bridge and seeing that they are about to crash, Glemmy yells, STOP! And the Endra slows before coming into contact with the massive dock ship. Chiara turns on him, but he is ready with a quick salute, and the announcement that the Gaza Sea team are ready to capture the Ayug vessel. On their way, Lena and Rue spot the fight, and turn around to warn the Argama, but they spot it too late. Glemmy sees the shine of their core fighter in the distance and chases after them. It doesn't take long for him to recognize Rue's ship, and he calls out to her, promising payback for their last encounter. The first thing Judo hears when he, El, and Bicha arrive at the Argama with the Zaku in tow is that the Lavian Rose is under attack. Good thing we didn't go there then, is Bicha's glib reply. But Judo loses his cool when he finds out that Lena wins in his place and that they have no idea if she's okay. Forgetting that he's still attached to the Zaku and through the Zaku to the other core fighter, he flies toward the fight, setting his engines against the other core fighters until the cable snaps and slings the Zaku back into space. The second cable breaks, and L follows Judo, leaving the Zaku to drift until it catches against the bridge of the Argama. Bright orders it brought in before the Argama goes to join in the Lavian Rose's defense. In a flash, Lena feels Judo call out to her across space, but Glemmy catches hold of the core fighter. He feels a pang and wonders if he's in love with Rue. At the same time, Rue opens her cockpit and promises to come with him peacefully if he'll let Lena go. He promises, and Rue immediately turns on the charm, flattering and complimenting him as she approaches his mobile suit, then shoving him out into space. He shoots a grapnel at his Gaza Sea and reels himself back in, but not before Rue has freed the core fighter and taken off again. Judo makes it to the battlefield and Glemmy calls for reinforcements. The rest of the Gaza Sea team are ordered to cease their attack on the dock ship and turn their attention to the Ayug fighters. Once El arrives, the three core fighters keep trying to form the double Zeta, while the Axis forces try to keep them apart. On the bridge of the Argama, they hear a voice announce that the Zeta is ready to launch. It's Enol, who has repaired the decapitated Zeta Gundam by putting the Zaku head on it. 
Concerned about friendly fire, Bright and Torres warn the other AU pilots that the Zeta Zaku is on its way. Eno struggles with the out-of-date view screen on the old mobile suit, but is able to distract Glemmy, giving Judo, Rue, and L time to form the double Zeta. Once formed, it easily knocks back Glemmy's suit and destroys two more. The battle has shifted in Ayug's favor. Chiara suggests that they take the Lavian Rose hostage, but the dock ship is not without defenses. Its various arms, normally used for ship repair, grab at the Endra and threaten to tear it apart, forcing Chiara to order a retreat before finally launching in the Ar Jarja. In spite of her consistent reluctance, once Chiara is flying, she seems thrilled to be fighting the Double Zeta. At first, Judo is confused by her ranting about the sensations of the battlefield, but when she says, don't you feel it? Space is flying towards us. He is knocked into some kind of new type reverie, frozen in the grasp of the Arjarja. All around, his friends call out to him, and when he doesn't respond, Rue does the only thing she can do. She takes her little core fighter and fires at Kiara, who swaths the fighter away. Its cockpit flies open, and Lena is flung out into space. Her cries are what finally snaps Judo back to reality. He fights his way clear of the Arjarja and uses one of the Double Zeta's new beam weapons, a beam so powerful it disintegrates asteroids and melts the Arjarja's legs clean off. But this weapon uses up the last of the Double Zeta's power. It is left immobile, with not even a beam saber for defense. Glemmy scoops up Lena, thinking that the figure in the normal suit must be Rue. The Endra and its mobile suits retreat, taking Lena with them. So there's a lot of Rue in this episode, and I'm sure we'll come back to her. But I realized that her comment to Fa, the a cool girl who occasionally messes up, is totally adorable. Sounds like the findings of a market research group. Yeah, totally. It sounds like a bunch of market research people got together and they're like, well, we interviewed and polled and, you know, surveyed 12 to 28 year olds who watch anime. And the consensus is that a cool girl who makes uh, mistakes sometimes is totally adorable. <laughs> it sounds like the finding of some research mm -hmm, rather than mm -hmm. someone's description of themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a weird way, this might lead into this week's episode. <laughs> Yeah, it, it almost kind of sounds like we're already talking about this week's episode. <laughs> I say that because there are several moments in this episode that seem to point at or comment on various aspects of the storytelling in the first two Gundam series. Mm. Particularly, I suppose this really only applies to two people, Glemmy and Kiara. I think I know what you're talking about with Glemmy. And based on some previous conversations, I have an inkling of where you're going with Kiara. <laughs> Should we jump into it? <laughs> I may have mentioned this previously, I think, but that she is, a, to me, a clearer and clearer commentary and in some ways parody of the cyber new type women that we have encountered, women and girls, in previous episodes and previous shows. And we talked about that last week, but... What we didn't talk about is something that you mentioned as we were watching this episode, which is that Kiara is not just a parody of those characters, but she is an indictment of a certain kind of audience response to them. Throughout the episode, we have various men being made uncomfortable 
by what I'm going to call Kiara's just like rampant and overt sexuality. Just hypersexual. <laughs> Everything that she does in this episode is super duper sexed up. Glemmy, when he's trying to convince Mashimo to stay, tells him, but she gets aroused just sitting in a mobile suit. <laughs> I know I've mentioned this before, but occasionally in various episodes, thinking about what's happening and processing it, you know, the second or third time, I have light bulb moments. And this was one for me because, you know, what is the difference between in pain moaning and groaning and writhing and sexual moaning and groaning and writhing? Obviously, there is a difference <laughs> functionally, but if the audience is attracted in both cases, what difference does it make? And even a cursory look at the fandom around Gundam, and especially Zeta Gundam, reveals that a significant portion of the fandom is uh, very attracted to these like tragic, suffering, new-type girls for Rosamia, Sarah. And what you said about the difference between like sexualized writhing and groaning versus uh, tormented writhing and groaning, especially in art, that line is so thin. And when we have poems and uh, dialogue, when people in art talk about sex, it's often with the language of suffering. It's often equated to suffering. We talk about like the seven-year itch and the little death and all of these linguistic metaphors, which really just elide that line that separates the two. And it does feel as though the show is turning the spotlight on the audience comparing the audience to men like Glemmy, men like Mashima, men like Goten, and saying, it's messed up that you want to sexualize women's pain, but women actually being interested in sex terrifies you or disgusts you. Yeah, they're so scared of her. And it's not just Mashima and Glemmy and Goten who are the named characters, the face characters, but also the rest of the crew of the Endra. This is something I noticed very early on in the show and haven't mentioned yet, but if you look at them, the way they're drawn, the way they wear their hair, their accessories, glasses, all that sort of thing, makes them look very much like ordinary people in the mid-1980s. They're also exclusively male, except for Kiara, and something about their overall presentation makes them feel like uh, a mirror for the audience, and specifically for what is, at this point, the emerging class of anime maniacs, the people who are, in some corners at this point, being called otaku, and who will be known by that name more widely in the future. Finally, I don't think we can talk about Kiara and her position in the show and the rest of it without addressing that of all the women cyber new types we have ever encountered, she is the oldest. Gundam and ages is always problematic. <laughs> I would peg Kiara in her mid-twenties. I don't... <laughs> um, uh -huh. But firmly an adult woman rather than a young woman, a teen. She certainly seems the oldest. In many ways, the most self-possessed and the most mature. And again, the show wants to draw our attention to the fact that this disturbs the men around her. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
when she's in the captain's chair on the Endra and she orders them to ram the Levian Rose, her uh, mood in that moment, she's tapping her foot, she's sort of dancing, she's like talking about the the feelings, the energy of the battlefield. And in that moment, she resembles nothing so much as uh, Ramba Rall in the first series when they were launching the commando raid against the white base. And he's like, the wind is whipping through his hair and he's got this almost manic gleam in his eye. And it's like, this is the feeling of battle. It's the same thing, but this is a, a feminine version of it. And for the men around her, this is terrifying. Although maybe not as terrifying as the uh, sex metaphor that they're currently doing with the Endra and the Livian Rose, which frightens all of them into paralysis as they attempt to thrust their very phallic ship into the extremely Yonic Rose uh, dock. There are a few other very explicitly sexual moments in this episode. The way she justifies her refusal to wear a normal suit by saying, oh, but if I wear that, I won't be able to feel the sensations of battle is very like, oh, but if I wear a condom, I won't feel anything. <laughs> um, and mere moments later, she's the one telling Judo, bigger isn't always better. Like I said, everything she does in this episode is sexualized in some way. If you're concerned about sexual content, I think we're getting it all out of the way now. But this is all it's stuff in that the is, episode. Right. And when I made that comment about condoms, I think at least that it's meant to be interpreted that way, that that is the the kind of vibe we are meant to get, given that it's Kiara talking about the sensations of the battlefield. I do think that the show is putting Kiara up as this very sexualized and also very tormented new type woman character and contrasting this with these kind of audience insert characters and it's sort of saying this is really gross the way you looked at four and rosamia and sarah it's really pretty gross in case we were wondering whether or not she's actually a cyber new type at all this episode seems to give us confirmation i mean the cyber is unclear but the new type Definite. Sure, that's true. We don't know that Axis is trying to do anything specifically to create new types, but since we know that Axis live in a deeper part of space, generally, than the rest of space noids, that something about living in deeper space seems to create more new types, and here she is. And she talks a lot of nonsense, but her mention of space rushing toward them is what knocks Judo into his sort of reverie, which is very like when he and Camille held hands. Or like when Camille and Haman were dueling. There's a kind of like a reciprocity between new types. He gets caught up in this feeling of space rushing by that doesn't dissipate until Lena calls out to him. And what Judo is feeling here is, I think, the same sensation that Kiara is describing, the same one that makes her so excited when she's piloting. While their mobile suits are locked in this violent embrace, she's sharing that feeling with him. Lena also confirmed to be a new type. Although, as with so many other characters who we have encountered in previous series, it's unclear if she maybe just has a specific reciprocity with her brother. She feels Judo coming. And then she sort of transmits to him when she gets knocked out of that core fighter. Going back to what you said at the beginning, 
The other thing that this episode does to comment on receptions to the prior shows and the storytelling in them is Glemmy talking to Rue and explicitly, expressly warning her against making superficial analyses of his character by accusing him of having a mother complex, an Oedipus complex. This one fell a little bit flat for me because while Glemmy clearly has very fond memories of his parents and talks to his parents, that's his like internal dialogue is to talk to his parents, mostly his mother, but sometimes both. Uh, the relationship he seems to have with his parents is clearly very different from either Amaro or Camille and their mothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I understand why uh, the creators might be frustrated that everyone keeps pointing out the uh, clear themes of... Uh, <laughs> How complicated dare, feelings towards mothers. How dare people notice patterns in our work? <laughs> I don't know where they're going to go with Glemmy. Clearly, they've gone in a very different direction with Judo as a protagonist. But it's hard to argue with the fact that both Amaro and Camille had issues with their moms. Yeah, those were fraught relationships. And that those issues affected their relationships with other women their own age. And we've seen Tomino's setting notes for First Gundam. We know he said Amuro had a mother complex. That was part of the character's design. So that particular bit of retro commentary fell flat for me. <laughs> Cannot believe that Glemmy fell for Rue's tricks again. And they're not even subtle. <laughs> she goes from being angry at him and bargaining for Lena to being like, oh, what a handsome pilot. Hello, Glemmy. You know, I can tell from this conversation that you've never been a dumb 16-year-old boy. That's true. As a former dumb 16-year-old boy, I can say I would probably have fallen for at least a couple of ruse tricks. Maybe not 100%. More than I'm proud to admit. Well... While we're admitting embarrassing things, I was probably more like Rue. <laughs> Humorously, Rue is outraged when Lena suggests that Glemmy is in love with her. <laughs> Which just goes to show it has never occurred to Rue that anyone would take her nonsense seriously. It's meant to be a distraction. It's meant to give her the upper hand, but it's not meant to like give him feelings. <laughs> Because Rue knows how ridiculous what she's doing is. Part of the cool girl thing is like not catching feelings. That's built into the concept. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no one is supposed to catch feelings. <laughs> I know that you said that you felt like the Glemmy bit fell a bit flat. However, I get kind of a methinks he doth protest too much vibe from it. A sort of hanging a lampshade on the thing. A little bit of a, people sure are asking a lot of questions about my I do not have a mother complex t-shirt that are already answered by my I do not have a mother complex t-shirt. My mother warned me this might happen. That's why I bought the t-shirt. <laughs> the uh, causal engine, if you will, for the episode is Judo's distractibility from the task at hand and Lena's insistence that she will take responsibility for his behavior and go in his stead. This is such an old idea. 
Uh, and is not the only moment in this episode that sort of harkens back to some very ancient ideas, but I'm particularly interested in this one because I feel as though it crops up in a bunch of different cultures, times, places, but the idea of a family member taking on an incomplete promise of someone else, you know, a young woman dies before she can marry her betrothed, and so they switch the engagement to her sister. Or, you know, a parent doesn't pay off their debts, and so their child has to take on the debts. Or This notion of taking on responsibilities that don't really belong to you, but that someone has to do for the good of the group or the world, this is really core to Gundam. Because what is Gundam all about except children stepping up to take on responsibilities that are beyond their capacity, beyond what they should be expected to do, totally inappropriate for their age, but no one else is doing them, either because no one else can do them or much more often, and maybe in fact all of the time, because no one else will do them. Think back to First Gundam and the refugee population of the Argama and how all of those adults refused to step up and help out. They didn't take care of the orphans. They didn't work on the ship. All of that fell to the kids. How in Zeta, you know, you have these scenes of all of these civilians who hate the Titans but refuse to stand up to them, and the responsibility for doing so ends up falling on kids like Camille and Katz and Fa, and ultimately costs them, you know, lives, minds, leaves them with lifelong trauma. I agree with that read of Gundam, but don't you think in this case the familial relationship is kind of front and center of it in a way that it hasn't been before? I think it is presented in that way, and I would feel more strongly about that read, except that Lena is fitting into the tradition, the long tradition in Gundam, of young women stepping in to take over whatever mundane responsibilities need to be done. And she does this at the beginning of the episode when she brings the drinks to Bright and Torres. But this is what Fa has done. It's what uh, Fra did back in First Gundam, you know, doing the unglamorous, often unpleasant, but need to get done tasks. And yeah, I think Lena feels a special sense of responsibility for the things her brother won't do. But it's more of that feeling of like, this needs to get done. No one else will do it. I guess I'll do it. However, she is very insistent that she has to go. There are other people available to go get supplies from the Levian Rose. Rue doesn't need Lena with her. <laughs> and Eno even offers to go in Lena's place. This is Lena, who appears to be a pretty astute judge of people's character and emotions, uh, strong-arming her brother. Because she knows that if she puts herself in danger and says... The only reason I had to go is because you wouldn't go. It will both make him realize that any time he refuses to do something, she'll do it and put herself in danger. And to the extent that Judo is capable of feeling shamed, possibly shame him somewhat that like his little sister is more responsible than him. Yeah. I mean, for Judo, this is an episode about a conflict of identity, a conflict between being the ruffian scrap dealer who can do whatever he wants and being the pilot of the double zeta a soldier in Ayug. and it's a conflict between following the rules versus doing what he wants to do it's about 
social expectations. And want to point out, this is also something we see in Kiara over on the other side. A lot of Kiara's behavior here is presented as a negative because she's defying social expectations for how a woman should behave and for how a commander should behave. Lena then represents a kind of uh, civilizing influence on judo. Another role commonly relegated to women. I was going to point out, you are always talking about this, how women are often presented in media as uh, representatives of civilization. I took one class on Westerns in college, uh, but it was very enlightening. And one of the things they talk about is that often in Westerns, women symbolize the arrival of civilization in the wilderness and a civilizing influence on the men of that place. But generally only, quote unquote, good women, right? <laughs> the school marms, etc. What an interesting thing for you to mention, because when Mashima leaves the Endra at the beginning of this episode, Gotten clearly thinks that Kiara is going to be a, if not civilizing, then at least like rationalizing influence. Right. He is perfectly content to see Mashima leave. Because he thinks Kiara is going to be a more conventional and better commander. <laughs> he is quickly disabused of this notion. But that's what he thinks before she turns out to be, you know, a quotes attached around this bad woman. Interestingly, while on the Argama, Lena represents that civilizing influence, Rue definitely does not. And L kind of vacillates back and forth. When Rue agrees to let Lena go with her, it's clearly not because she is like committed to this mission of shaming Judo. Rue agrees to let Lena go with her because it seems like fun and why not? And Rue clearly believes in women doing, again, quotes, masculine jobs like piloting. I would say Rue also just can't be bothered to convince Lena not to go. Lena is so determined that it would probably take a lot to convince Lena to stay home and Rue just can't be bothered. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right. Yeah, why not? If you insist on coming, sure. <laughs> she also uh, gets a little irritated at Eno later. When Eno shows up and says, Lena, Lena, are you okay? And it's like, well, she's been with me. Why wouldn't she be okay? <laughs> you mentioned L. I think L is very contextual. And what I mean by that is, by the standards of adult crew veterans aboard the Argama, uh, L is not particularly uh, conventional or civilized. But by the standards of this group of young ruffians from Shangri-La, she is very. Yeah. We see in this episode again and again, Bicha has no stomach for a fight. And that in and of itself, I can understand. You know, I'm not one of those people who thinks everybody needs to be ready to jump into danger at a moment's notice. Like, that's not everyone's personality. That's not everyone's role. Mm -hmm. We don't need everyone in the world to be like, yeah, let's go fight. Um, but his total lack of concern for his friends is what makes him contemptible. Yeah, well, I don't think it's that Bicha has no concern at all for his friends. But everything else is more important for him. The profits from the Zaku acquisition, more important than his friends. His fear of going into combat, more important than the necessity of helping his friends. So yeah, contemptible. Here's a question for you, though. Why is Bicha even in this episode? I wondered, too. Like... 
he's not doing anything in that core fighter except taking up space. Mm -hmm. Why is he there? In every way, his presence makes L less effective. I think he's there because it's funny. They make a great comedic duo together. And it really allows us to get a glimpse of their respective personalities. Yeah, without without Bicha there to say, oh, we don't want to go into that fight. We don't have the same impact from L saying, we are going to go help. And here's the other reason Bicha is there. And this, I think, is really a clever bit of storytelling. Um, Bicha is the Zaku head on the Zeta. Bicha is the weak link in this partnership. As we've been covering Double Zeta, we have pointed out that friendship and the group dynamic are really important to what Double Zeta is trying to get at. And the prior episode, Activate Double Zeta, was our introduction to the Double Zeta, the mobile suit. But this episode is the one that really uh, teaches us about the Double Zeta. This is where we learn things about it that are important and unique to it as compared to prior Gundams. We also, I think, at this point can acknowledge that while the Double Zeta is uh, sort of a metaphor for judo, it's also one for the show as a whole. And the Double Zeta is all about uh, teamwork. It's about all the parts coming together and working together to be stronger than their individual components. As you said, sort of as a joke, a few days ago, the Double Zeta is powered by friendship. Yeah, where the Zeta was literally powered by the souls of Camille's dead friends. The Double Zeta is powered by teamwork, by Judo's alive friends working together. And this episode shows us how the Double Zeta is vastly more powerful than the sum of its component parts. The fighters, even all three of them working together, are nothing compared to the Double Zeta. They are, in fact, quite vulnerable. Yes. And the complexity of bringing them all together is difficult. It's hard to do that in the middle of a battle. It requires a level of coordination and teamwork that they aren't always able to pull off. And potentially someone to cover for you, someone to be a distraction right. to give you enough time to do the transformation. Exactly. And when the team is not complete or when the team is not working together, when there is a weak link that is letting the team down, then you can't form the double Zeta. Then you can't win the fight. As a brief aside... I was amused to notice, I don't usually catch these little animation things as often as Tom does, but uh, because they were reusing some of the transformation footage, uh, in the transformation, there are two ejects, even though we see later that uh, L and Bicha are still stuck <laughs> in the double Zeta. <laughs> womp womp. That's a good notice. Also worth pointing out, as long as we're on the transformation sequence, there is a new opening animation starting with this episode. The song is the same, it's still Anime Janai, but the animation has been changed to include the double Zeta and the transformation sequence. And I think when the double Zeta comes together in this episode, but the core fighter with Bicha and L in it fails to eject, ultimately hampering Judo's ability to fight, that's another aspect of this metaphor of Bicha not being part of the team yet, not uh, pulling his weight. And while it's not uh, literally united by the powers of friendship, the Zeta over there with the Zaku head that is like just 
barely enough to work, but doesn't work the way they want it to. Its cameras are not sufficient to support the 360 degree monitor. You know, that's the same thing. That's somebody on the team is not there yet. We mentioned the vulnerability of the core fighters versus the overwhelming power of the double Zeta. Uh, is the cockpit just flying open a common problem on fighter planes? <laughs> it's turning into a trope here. Core fighter crashes, cockpit flies open, people flung into space. Granted, fighter planes are not designed to withstand crashing into... Well, they're meant to keep you alive when you crash into stuff, but they're, <laughs> they're not meant to stay whole when they crash into stuff. That's not how crashing works. But it is funny to me that we're what? 11 episodes in, and I feel as though this happens almost every episode. Yeah, at least two-thirds of the episodes of the show so far have involved a cockpit, either unable to close or being broken open and somebody being thrown out. There's definitely something going on with that. Faulty mechanisms. Somebody should talk to Anaheim about this. <laughs> Anaheim needs to issue a product recall. It's going to be a class action lawsuit. And then on the other hand, we have the power of the double Zeta. And here we see what I assume is right now the double Zeta's most powerful beam weapon being used for the first time. My immediate reaction to it was that given the way it disintegrates the asteroids, given the way it melts the legs clean off of Kiara's mobile suit, that it is comparable to powerful shipboard weapons that we've seen in previous Gundam series, that we are at a point now where what we used to think of as the most powerful weapons that could be attached to ships are now able to be put into mobile suits. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What's so interesting about this weapon, though, is after using it, the Double Zeta Gundam is completely drained of power. We've yep. never seen that before with a mobile suit, that it's just completely exhausted. It can't even power its beam saber anymore. And to me, this just feels like, have you ever had that feeling of just like so much explosive anger that wells up in you? And then when it's gone, when it's spent, you just feel completely wiped out. Uh, Yeah. Although for me, that often happens more with being sad. If you've ever had the feeling of needing to have a good cry, because it's just too much. But then once you cry it out, you're exhausted, but it's gone. Mm. I'm thinking about that feeling of the adrenaline just when the adrenaline Falling is, away. Yeah, <laughs> the dump after the adrenaline. I really felt for Bright. Oh my gosh. Is Bright the only dad in Gundam who knows he's a bad dad? Uh, what a painful position to be in. He's in an impossible position. It would have been wrong for him to not fight the Titans. That was the right thing for him to do. But it also means that he hasn't seen his kids in at least a year. And what is he supposed to do now? There's also the uh, sort of evolution of Bright through the series, right? As a commander in First Gundam, he certainly had moments where things were beyond him. And maybe I'm looking back with somewhat rose-tinted glasses <laughs> on First Gundam, but I think he was a pretty skilled, competent commander in First Gundam. And we've we've mentioned 
both in Zeta and here that it it doesn't seem that way anymore. He doesn't seem particularly effectual or even necessary. And I do wonder how much of that is his sort of inability to adapt to or contend with the fact that as the commander of the white base, he was with his peers. Like, yes, he was the commander, but also everything was just flatter structurally because they were so close in age, all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, is the problem that as he's gotten older, he expects people to just respect him because he's an adult and because of his experience. And then when they don't give him that respect, he doesn't really know what to do. That's got to be part of it. You know, he earned the respect of everybody on the white base. And he came from a place of being 19 and like not really expecting anyone to respect him. Now he's done his time. He was a hero of the war. Then he was a hero of a different war. And now he's dealing with all of these disobedient teenagers again. Right. But as you said, previously, he had to win the respect of the people around him. And honestly, who else wanted the job? Um, (laughs) Also, I don't know what to make of this in the show is the thing. But the Bright of First Gundam was more willing to resort to methods like corporal punishment or throwing people in the brig uh, when he deemed it necessary. When was the last time we've seen Bright be severe with anyone? And not that I think that would necessarily solve the problem or be the only way to solve the problem. But he was so much more energetic. You know, that severity came from a place of energy, of participation in the like life of the crew and of putting his whole self into it. He just feels so detached now. Well, now, whenever something goes wrong or someone doesn't follow orders or whatever, his response is just to grumble to himself and let everybody do what they want. <laughs> yeah, he just throws up his hands and says, whatever, I hate my job. I miss my kids. I quibble whether or not his kids are actually as obedient as he remembers them or imagines them to be. I know they're probably better than all of these awful space children that he's stuck with. But they also weren't teens yet. I don't think he really remembers what teens are like. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't mind that you went immediately to Bright thinking about what a terrible father he must be, because I also have that in my notes. But when I said I really felt for Bright, what I actually was thinking of is when that Zaku was drifting towards the bridge of the Argama. I mean, they weren't in terrible much danger at that point, but after the Zaku gets snagged and it's just sort of drifting there in front of the bridge, it does a close-up on Bright's face, and then there's like a shot-reverse-shot thing so you can see him looking at the Zaku. And something about his expression and the way it's all constructed makes me think about how seeing a Zaku coming right at the bridge must, uh, for him, be conjuring up the ghosts of the one-year war. The term is certainly overused at this point, but that it could be very uh, triggering of some traumatic memories to see a Zaku looming in the, the bridge like that. Yeah. On a happier note, I love the Junker kids in the wreckage of the one-year war battle, just being like, this is amazing. This is all worth so much money. Let's grab that and that and a complete Zaku (laughs) MSO6F. (laughs) 
And now Nina's research on Kiara Soon and female reporters in the 1980s. Before Nina gets started, I will point out this is a research piece about women in Japan in the workplace, and so a content warning is appropriate. There will be discussions of sexual harassment, abuse, and rape. She's a reluctant mobile suit pilot and looks like a rock star, but is she also a reporter? We know that Kiara is ostensibly on the Endra to observe Mashima's progress and report back to Haman, though that goal seems to have been completely lost by this episode. In spite of the fact that she is working within the Axis military structure, rather than for an independent or even national news outlet, many of her scenes early on make this reporter comparison, particularly with her frequent use of a small portable recording device. So why make her out to be a reporter? Is she part of a long tradition of lady reporter characters, a la His Girl Friday, Lois Lane, and April O'Neil, to name a few? Or is this something else entirely? Time to look at the history of women in journalism in Japan. Japan's first daily newspaper dates from 1870. Hani Motoko, whose maiden name was Matsuoka Motoko, is considered to be the first woman journalist in Japan, with a career that began nearly 30 years after that in 1897. Born into a former samurai family in 1873, she was highly educated for women of her time and worked as a teacher before she married. After her first marriage didn't work out, she worked as a maid and then as a copy editor for Hochi Shimbun, eventually working as a reporter there. She went on to marry one of her co-workers and they co-founded the women's magazine Fujin no Tomo, or Women's Friend, in 1908. She was in many ways the vanguard, the first of a small number of women employed to write about quote-unquote home life, which is to say tips on things like cooking, child-rearing, sewing, and home management, and women's issues in the early 1900s. And the emergence of a uh, small but dedicated segment of the news-gathering and reporting industry that was specifically for and about, you know, quote, women's issues, I think is also connected to the emergence of a nascent feminist movement at this time that was then um, adopted or absorbed or co-opted by the Japanese ultra-nationalist political movement of the era. I believe we talked about this a bit when we addressed the history of feminism in Japan, but there were uh, certainly women at this time who were willing to use the rhetoric of the good wife and wise mother to try to raise the profile of women in Japan to explain why they thought women's education was important to further the cause of women in Japan, frankly, at the expense of people abroad. And that good wife and wise mother idea you mentioned was a nationalist concept developed as part of this effort to like define what good Japanese womanhood constituted. And so the then emergence of a literary and publishing industry around like talking to women and talking about what women's roles should be, all of that is connected. Japan's first woman photojournalist, Sasamoto Tsuneko, was born in 1914, began working in the field in 1939, and celebrated her 104th birthday in September of 2019. In her career, she documented events as varied as the Hitler Youth delegation to Japan in 1940, the aftermath of the bombing of Hiroshima, scenes of the occupation, 
geisha training schools in the 1950s, protests and student unrest, and numerous famous public figures, including writers and politicians. She was an outlier when she started her career and is still an outlier now. Women remain a particularly tiny portion of technical personnel in news media, jobs like photographers, camera operators, and light and sound technicians. There was a brief expansion in the 1960s when a few more women than usual were hired as reporters, specifically for the Tokyo 1964 Olympics. But the number of women in journalism remained negligible until legal changes forced an expansion. Longtime listeners will remember that we have frequent cause to refer back to the Equal Employment Opportunity Law for Men and Women of 1985. And here we are referring to it again. As a refresher, this landmark law, which was designed to increase women's participation in the labor force, has been moderately successful, but has also been criticized for creating a small class of women in management while relegating most women to part-time and contingent employment. Once the law was passed, though, there was a significant increase in women being hired as full-time regular journalists. Yet even now, in most countries around the world, women are underrepresented in the news media workforce, whether in newspapers, radio, or television broadcasting. There are a few notable exceptions where parity has been reached, and even a couple of countries where there are more women working in the industry than men. But even in these countries, equal representation at the management and governance, or board of directors level, has not been reached. When looking at the international figures, Japan is a noted outlier. Its level of women in news media is the lowest of all countries surveyed by the International Women's Media Foundation. And that, dear listeners, is now. Or at least, it's based off recent studies and data I found, which are from around 2011. One of these studies surveyed eight media companies, a mix of broadcast and print news, and found that just 17.6% of employees were women, a ratio of about six men to every one woman, compared to a global ratio of two to one and a ratio in the Asia and Oceania region of four to one. So why are there still so few women in journalism in Japan? First, there are industry and corporate structure issues. Despite cross-ownership being banned by law, there are exemptions that make it functionally very common. This means that one large corporation will own a newspaper and a radio station and a TV station and local affiliates. Aside from the antitrust issues and the fact that it means information is largely restricted and uniform, this also means that these different news organizations are not monitoring and reporting on each other. There is no one to keep them honest, if you will. On top of these concerns, there is a closed and tightly controlled system called the Kisha Club. It operates press rooms at government offices, police stations, corporate offices, and so on for daily briefings, and access is restricted to member organizations. This consolidation and these restrictions of access to sources decrease the options for employees who want to move to another company or go freelance due to workplace harassment or other reasons. Only three of the eight Japanese companies surveyed had a gender equality policy. Only five could provide numbers of sexual harassment reports over the previous five years, and in every case, the numbers were very small, single digits or even zero. Now, it is highly unlikely that those are real numbers of sexual harassment cases, but the article points out that in these companies, there is little to no anonymity. It's likely that if you report someone's behavior, they will know you're the one who did it. 
Within the company, women are often strongly discouraged from reporting harassment. There's a fear of retaliation, and many women in the industry feel they have to gaman. They have to suffer through it. They have to endure in order to pave the way for the next generation of women journalists. Harassment that these journalists experience isn't limited to within their companies. The dependence on sources for information and the likelihood that a source is someone who holds a position of power and authority in society, such as a government or police official, lead to many sources harassing or trying to take advantage of journalists to the point of demanding sexual favors in exchange for information. In the past few years, several cases have made the news. Journalist Ito Shiori became the face of the Me Too movement in Japan when she brought a rape case against prominent journalist Yamaguchi Noriyuki. Despite the police attempting to talk her out of making the report, the suggestion that her career would suffer, and the refusal of mainstream media outlets to take the story. In 2018, Vice Finance Minister Fukuda Junichi resigned when audio recordings were published of him asking to touch the breasts of a reporter interviewing him, despite her repeated pleas for him to stop. When she went to her employer, they told her to drop it and threatened a reprimand if she went public. After the story broke, Fukuda's boss argued that sexual harassment wasn't illegal, and anyway, the way to prevent it was to replace women reporters with men. Cases like these caused veteran reporters to reflect on what they endured in their careers, with Katayama Yuki, a reporter for the Hokkaido Shimbun, reflecting that women either learned to laugh it off or quit. She also wrote, If we raise a fuss about sexual harassment, our sources will dry up. In fact, harassment is so accepted as part of the job that potential employees are asked about whether they think they can handle it in their interviews. If that weren't enough of an explanation, there is also Japan's workplace culture. The extremely long hours expected of employees support strict division of labor in families. The person working outside of the home has no time for necessary home tasks, child rearing, or elder care. Tax breaks for spouses reinforce this division of labor, which is further exacerbated by practices in the news industry. Unlike in most other countries where morning and evening news are produced by different teams, in Japan, they are produced by the same team. Working very long hours is common, and 24-hour workdays are not unheard of. Obviously, this work culture is harmful to men, too. No one should have to work those kinds of hours. No one's job should preclude them from pursuing outside interests and spending time with their family. But it affects women in the workplace more due to strong public support for gender-based division of labor in families. In 2009, 40% of survey respondents agreed that women shouldn't work outside the home, and this percentage is higher among men, which matters because men are the ones making decisions about hiring, firing, and promotions. With the majority of governance and upper management level positions held by men, and half or more of men believing that women shouldn't be working outside the home, is it any wonder more women aren't hired and promoted? The work environment and the lack of women mentors within the company, both to shape policy and to demonstrate a career path, lead to high turnover of women employees. Management interprets this as women are unreliable, and the cycle repeats. Now, I don't generally think exams are a great way to determine someone's fitness for a job, uh, but women perform better in corporate recruitment exams for journalism jobs in Japan. Then hiring managers, taking quote-unquote male-female balance into consideration, will make sure that no more than 30 to 40% of the recruitment class is women. 
which reminds me of a recent scandal where it was found that a few Japanese medical schools were altering women's scores on the entrance exams to make it look as though they had not scored well enough to be admitted. One area of the journalism industry in which there has long been a preference for women is as announcers in broadcast news. However, these young, beautiful women are often freelancers and are treated almost like show business celebrities. This unfortunately means that they tend to be pushed out as they get older. And women journalists endure harassment throughout their careers. There's a poisonous, sexist framing for this that crops up sometimes. The women are not, in fact, being harassed. They are using their sexuality, their wiles, to get information and further their careers. As one of my sources put it, quote, male reporters have been known to joke about the supposed advantages enjoyed by their female colleagues in this grubby game. How uncomfortable, then, that the overtly sexual and sexy Kiara Soon is also cast, however briefly, as a reporter. What I've just described is how things are now. Conditions and attitudes would have been just as bad, if not worse, in the mid-1980s. People at the time, the creators of Double Zeta, the production team, the audience, would have thought of journalism as a man's game, and the sudden appearance of women in this male-dominated field would have garnered considerable attention and not a little consternation. Imagine the think pieces. As a modern career woman, is Kiara meant to be an example of girl power, or is she a joke at women's expense? A stereotype of the calculating, manipulative woman using her wiles to get ahead? Because she is contrasted with Mashima, who is just as bad a commander, I can at least give Double Zeta credit for this. It's not sending the message that Kiara is a bad commander because she's a woman. I was particularly struck by your reference to managers trying to maintain, quote, gender balance, but that their idea of gender balance is 30% women at most. It reminds me a little bit of some studies from, um, some of you may know this already, but it's kind of a cool tidbit. Actress Gina Davis went on to fund and promote and do a lot of work in like gender and media, basically. And one of the studies that she helped uh, start found that crowd scenes in animated shows are overwhelmingly male. Like even when it's a crowd in a village and there is no reason why <laughs> that shouldn't be effectively 50-50 and that animators think that they're creating a gender representative crowd, that it never occurs to them that what they're drawing is as imbalanced as it is. I think it's a quite well-known fallacy at this point that people tend to overemphasize the significance of minority presence. Like people tend to see, you know, a group with 30% women and think, wow, there are so many women in this group or any other minority that you choose uh, to look at. Well, and women, women are a minority in, in some workplaces, but not in the population <laughs> is part of the kicker on that. This is sort of less relevant to Kiara, but came up in my reading. You know, if the editorial team is mostly men, there's going to be less time spent on issues that relate most strongly to women, despite, you know, being half or in most places, slightly more than half of the population. Issues that directly relate to them do not get anywhere near half of the airtime or the page space. Yeah. And everything we talk about 
with regard to Japan's lack of gender parity is so much more ridiculous when you remember that Japan's female population is significantly larger than its male population. Japan has about 61 million men and about 65 million women. One of the other things I noticed that came up a lot um, and that I tried to ignore, uh, there is certainly a kind of source that sort of puts the onus for solving this problem on women when it so clearly <laughs> needs to be addressed by men. <laughs> Nina, why don't they just lean in more? <laughs> Obviously, if women worked harder enough, then men wouldn't be able to deny them opportunities. The women just need to suffer more for the next generation. And particularly heartbreaking. I mean, this is something that happens all over the world. You know, I mentioned Ito Shiori. Um, she does not live in Japan anymore because even though she feels she did the right thing in bringing this case, even though it has sparked additional conversations in Japan about harassment, about the way police handle rape cases and such, uh, she also received a lot of really horrible victim-blaming um, correspondence of various kinds, uh, and she lives in London now. And you asked, I think rhetorically there towards the end, whether Kiara is meant to be a symbol of girl power, of women breaking down barriers, or if she's meant to be a joke at the expense of these women. I think that's a question we'll have to keep asking as we go through the show and we learn more about Kiara. But I think we also have to acknowledge the possibility that like so much else in Zeta and Double Zeta, the answer will be different from episode to episode. We've already seen episode to episode that there are times when Kiara seems very in control, very powerful. And there are times when Kiara seems ridiculous, sometimes even more so than Mashima. And that's a, a high bar. <laughs> and so which of those things will be the overriding narrative for her character is really hard to say at this point. Next time on episode 3.11, with a little help from my friends, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 13, and, to be fair, no one has provided an alternative Lena rescue plan. Naval Decorum. Someone does what Bright asks. So, uh, we're not doing anything about the Axis sympathizers on the Argama? Konnichiwa, Dabu-san. Glemmy's grooming. Goten, you need a union. Shinta's lasso skills. Obviously, the Argama can have only one woman pilot. And it takes a village to steal the double Zeta. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. 
The metal cover of Anime Janai that played at the end of Radio Free Shangri-La is a real, full cover that we commissioned from metal musician Stormland as part of our ongoing MSB Commissions project. You can find the whole piece in the show notes or on our social media, and you can find more of Stormland's music, including more Gundam-inspired metal, at stormland.bandcamp.com, on Twitter at stormlandbrand, and that's brand, not band, or on facebook.com stormland. You can also find Stormland on Spotify and iTunes, and the Anime Janai cover will be up there soon as well. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Calling this show Double Zeta was a lie, and worse than a lie, it was a misnomer. With both the Zeta and the Double Zeta on screen, this show should have been called Triple Zeta. Or I guess 2.9 Zetas when you account for the Zeta Zaku. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Hit the Targets in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Hit the Targets. And thank you for listening. All right, get out of here. <laughs> Wonderful new stationery. It is not your time. Point at to comment. God, what happened to my voice just then? When she initially goes out to fight Judo and she makes that comment about bigger isn't always better, Judo pulls a Mashima. Judo is like, oh, she must be leaving an opening in order to taunt me. What a good pilot. More of that theme of misunderstanding. Speaking of the Zaku head on the Zeta, it really bothered me how fixated everyone was on it. It wasn't like, oh, you know, what a clever way to fix the Zeta. Thank you for coming to help us. <laughs> it's like, what did you do to the Zeta? That's appalling. Gross. Ugh. Is that right? Arjarja or just Jarja? Arjarja, yeah. <clears throat> Alright, but I don't want to just move on from the notion of Beach as the weak link. Because okay. I do think that's important. Okay. Uh, and I'd like to talk about it. Okay. Sorry, I thought you just had I thought you were just gonna say Beach is the weak link. And that that would be enough. <laughs> I mean, it is true, and I don't think it needs to be argued. It does stand on its own. Um, but I do think I, I would like to talk about it a little bit. Um, I am content to let you. <laughs> you have no thoughts on the matter? Maybe I will as we talk about it some more, but Beach as the weak link seems pretty all-encompassing. <laughs> Self, self-encapsulating. <laughs> That's probably a good do-do-do. Do you think the kids still say extra? Because Kiara is very extra. <laughs> probably. I mean, I, I used catch feelings earlier, which probably already makes me sound dated. <laughs> and I think we need to finally address the uh, double Zeta lever that's in the core <laughs> fighter. What did they think that did before the double Zeta arrived? Maybe it was hidden and it only came out of its little like hatch or whatever in proximity to the other two core fighters. So you're saying the lever only like 
becomes erect when it's ready to combine. <laughs> yeah, sure. I guess make it sexual if you feel like you have to do that. <laughs> everything else in this episode is sexual. Why not this? Not everything. 